Winter, 1970, Daly City, California. I'm alone. I'm hungry and I'm shivering in the dark. I sit on top of my hands at the bottom of the stairs in the garage. My head is tilted backward. My hands became numb hours ago. My neck and shoulder muscles begin to throb, but that's nothing new. I've learned to turn off the pain. I am mother's prisoner. I am nine years old and I've been living like this for years. Every day it's the same thing. I wake up from sleeping on an old army cot in the garage, perform the morning chores, and if I'm lucky, eat leftover breakfast cereal from my brother's bowls. I run to school, steal food, return to the house, and am forced to throw up in the toilet bowl to prove that I didn't commit the crime of stealing any food. I receive beatings or play another one of her games, perform afternoon chores, then sit at the bottom of the stairs until I'm summoned to complete the evening chores. Then, and only if I have completed all of my chores on time, and if I have not committed any crimes, I may be fed a morsel of food. My day ends only when mother allows me to sleep on the army cot, where my body curls up in my meek effort to retain any body heat. The only pleasure in my life is when I sleep. That's the only time I can escape my life. I love to dream. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Truanon. I am both mother and mother's prisoner. My name is Brace Belden. I am actually mother, and my name is Liz. We are, of course, joined by producer Young Chomsky, and like Brace said, this is Truanon. Hello. Hello, and welcome to our guest, prisoner Thomas Morton. <laughs> Hello. We are, uh, we've got a lot to talk about today. Yeah, we. I think the easiest way to kind of intro this discussion is to say that uh, a while ago, Brace came to me and was like, I really want to do an episode on this book called A Child Called It. And I have a friend who's like kind of obsessed with these like fake memoir, like the mass paperback fake memoirs that have yes. kind of Dapp- doppled, I don't know what I want to say, dappled? Dappled? Dappled, dappled the last century, yeah. we'll say, of popular nonfiction uh, slash literature, depending on who's well, asking. Well, we'll get into nonfiction slash, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there's so many different examples of it. And then, like, amazing timing, because a scandal hit the... Comedy Netflix world. Netflix comedy world. And no, ladies and gentlemen, it was not Anthony Kumia walking down the street and encountering someone from a different race, ladies and gentlemen. It was an article in The New Yorker. America's Funniest Magazine. Uh, one of the <laughs> crazy who's – the, who's the humor columnist that they have? Uh, is it know, not David Sedaris? Not David Sedaris. But is Woody he, Allen? Does Woody Allen still write for them? I don't know if Woody Allen's really writing for many magazines. It's Hendrick Hertzberg. Is he no, still it's it? like you would – I'm sure there will be a million comments saying who it is. James I don't Thurber. Care. Mm-hmm. By the time you listen to this and comment telling me the actual name, I won't care anymore. So Most people just join The New Yorker because they want the funny little cartoon avatar. Andy Borowitz. Andy Borowitz. Thank you, young Chomsky. That was a real <laughs> Jamie moment right there. Um, you know, like Jamie pull it up. Liz, what? Don't get Jamie. Pull it up. It's from Joe Rogan. Jamie, oh. pull that on the screen. He I, knows what I'm, I'm talking not about. Faking. I had no idea what that was referencing. Okay, to. well, never but mind. But I love to learn more about you and your 
listening habits. The New Yorker, or as we call it, the New Dorker, because it's a magazine for nerds, put out a... Hit piece? <sighs> Takedown? What do you think? Hit piece? Shit piece. Shit piece. A shit piece. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a hit piece. I think piece. it's a shit piece, because I actually piece. do think that I'm going to stand, I'm going to, well, we can talk about this at the end of the episode, but I'm going to stand with Claire Malone, who's the writer st- of it, with it. Well, a shit piece would be you don't stand with her then, right? Woo. Yeah, and I'm saying I don't think it was a shit piece. Oh, you don't? Oh, well, I think it was a hit piece. Yeah. I think it was a hit piece. I think it was a targeted hit, I think, but no. I don't think that it, she was necessarily wrong. I think it was a hit piece. Claire Malone. I'm going to hit you with a fucking piece. No, oh, you would shoot someone with a piece. It's a <laughs> But I wouldn't because I don't want to murder you. I just want to hit you. Well, speaking Hard. of murders, comedian Hassan Minaj, Nicki Minaj's husband, uh, who is kind of – who is Hassan? He's like uh, – he's kind of like a, like a lefty comedian guy, right? I guess. I mean he was the host of a show called Patriot Act, which was – Basically, in the Daily Show slash John Oliver kind of um, sit at a desk and explain the news, and it, it gets you to some sort of something important to learn about. Oh, like it's some comedy, some news, like we do, like what we do. Yeah. Yes, or our friends at Chapo Trap House, mm-hmm. um, but for the TV, so different than what we do. So okay, yeah, no girls. Um, and actually, he was rumored. I mean, prior to this piece, rumored to be up for the Daily Show gig. Uh huh. Yeah, I saw that they're running through hosts now, and they had the guy from the Breakfast Club hosting the Daily Show for what? a little bit. Yeah, oh, it's really literally funny. went to the movie, not the show. No, the no. Club. The, oh well, that explains the difference between your culture and my my culture. Um, but he was in the running for uh, to become host of the Daily Show, like you said, and I believe this piece sort of dashed those hopes. So, I has any of you guys actually seen his stand up? In here? Anyone in the room seen no. a single second of it? I never heard of this guy in my life. I hadn't until this, and then I did, for homework reasons, watch some clips, and they're, it's not my cup of tea. Yeah. No, you're kind of more like a, you, you're. What am I, Brace? <laughs> nope, no, I'm let's, just going to. No, let's do it. Reel that sentence back in. I would say your, ten, your taste tends more towards the urban, like of comedy. You know what I mean? Like what, Brace? I don't know. This is how you describe it. I, you know, no, I don't know. This is, how, this is how you yourself describe it. But I would say it's more like a Liz at the Apollo situation rather than like Liz trying to learn some facts from the TV. But he had – in his comedy, I know that he uses uh, a purportedly real-life events to make a both comedic, political, and emotional point, right? Yeah. I mean that was kind of the thrust of the whole New Yorker piece that they were like, OK, this is a guy who has really leaned in to his personal experience as being sort of emblematic of, uh, you know, broader points that he makes through his comedy about – Racism in America, about the you know about the police in America, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a quote from the New Yorker. He leans heavily on his own experience as an Asian American and Muslim American, telling harrowing stories of law enforcement entrapment and personal threats. So he's a comedian and a performer, and I guess you would say a writer for you know for that matter. But he bases almost all of his performance on personal experiences, specifically ones having to do with racism. So he, like, really leans into the personal memoir-esque 
anecdotes in order to kind of, one, establish his own authority on something and sort of guide the audience through a story in order to illustrate a kind of larger moral point, I would say, right? Sounds hilarious, yeah. Yeah, it totally sounds funny. It was, I mean, I think it's like— What a great comedian. Yeah, there's a lot of comedy that's like this now, I guess. I love—I mean, um, his, there's one thing I love for my comedy. It's a sense of harrowing, harrowing kind of morality. Yeah. Yeah. He, like, really kind of— um, I mean, he, like, you know, uses PowerPoint presentations and really, like, I mean, it feels like it's, like, One of the funniest modes of comedy. Yeah, but, I mean, like, that, so he really does lean into that kind of style. Yeah, it's Um, Daily Show. And so in this piece, you know, the problem is, and this is for The New Yorker, and it's just easy to quote them here on this, so I'm going to do that. They, They write, they had been unable to confirm some of the stories that he had told on stage. Um, Hassan, for his part, he's quoted in the piece as saying, every story in my style is built around a seed of truth. My comedy, Arnold Palmer, is 70% emotional truth, this happened, and then 30% hyperbole, exaggeration, fiction. So this caused like a big stir, right? Well, it's, yeah, which I thought was was interesting to sort of like observe the backlash to that because I... I've always been under the impression that comedians are, well, I don't know if I would call it lying, but they're not, like, telling you the truth. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. unless, like, you know, you're watching some guy be like, I've been on the apps again. Because, like, yeah, that's probably true. But, like, you know, they're like these long, drawn-out stories that people tell about, like, like Burt Kreischer, Liz's favorite comedian, has this story about how he, like, was involved in the mafia train robbery or whatever. The machine story, right? The machine story, which I've never watched. It does, I dislike, he's got a Brett Gelman-esque physique. I think it's actually physique. Yeah. It's it, never mind. Go on. Uh, but he, uh, but like, people don't actually think that's like true, right? Yeah. And like, maybe there's like some parts of it that are true, which I'm sure is for a lot of comedian stories. But like, I've never been under the impression that like I'm I'm going to a comedy show to do anything but like look at my phone in a sort of desultory way and then leave 15 minutes after it starts. Yeah. Well, like going back to his analogy, like, aren't seeds something you want to remove from lemonade or iced tea? Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> true. I think, though, that—and this is kind of the, the I would say, part of the Claire Malone's argument, if she's making one, or the New Yorker's argument, whatever we want to say, um, is that Minhaj is, like, doing something different a little bit. Yeah. That saying that he's simply crafting jokes, even by his on, by his own admission, is, like, not sufficient to explain why audiences might feel a sense of betrayal finding out— that his stories were, I think, more than embellished. Yeah. Um, this is what they say. You know, they they run through in the piece several incidents that they they claim are, you know, exaggerated, if not like outright fabricated. So there's one story about a letter being sent to his home filled with white powder, and this was the time during um, oh, when I'd be so stoked <laughs> when Patriot Act, his his special on Netflix, was being filmed, and he had just um, done. And this is how he kind of frames it in the in the um, as he's telling this quote unquote joke. I guess if we want to say that it's a joke, um, 
so the framing of this story comes like as he, you know he's saying like okay we had just done segments on Jamal Khashoggi that perhaps he's basically intimating that maybe someone would want, might be upset with Saudi kind of, Arabia sending him an envelope of white powder. I'm not powder? saying that, but I'm saying that he's sort of framing it as he is dropping knowledge truth bombs that are dangerous mm-hmm. to certain segments of society, right? Um, and he tells a story about how he opens this letter and white powder spills out onto his like daughter. He rushes her to the hospital in fear that it's anthrax, which it's not, obviously. Um, and he then gets admonished by his wife for not taking seriously the consequences that he says of like what he says on TV. Like she's basically like, look, what you say about, you know, Khashoggi, I guess, or about, you know, uh, I don't know, the Saudis or Yemen or whatever he's talking about, those have real consequences to your, like, real life, right? Yeah. And this is kind of the the anecdote that he's telling. It's, a, like, moralist tale, right? Um, there's another one where he figures out that a guy at, the, at a mosque in Sacramento when he was a kid growing up is actually an FBI informant. Um, th- he names this guy Brother Eric in the— joke. What's his name? <laughs> Brother Eric. Can you say that more with like an accent? And Minhaj basically decides, he's like, oh, I think this guy's an FBI informant, so I'm going to fuck with him, basically being like, oh, well, you know, I'm like about to get my pilot's license, like kind of like joking around, like kind of fucking around. And then he says, at a certain point, the police show up and slam Minhaj, as he, he's like a young boy, against the car. And he experiences this like police brutality, and it's a story about, um, you know, anti-Muslim uh, bigotry and police surveillance in the wake of 9-11. Yeah, I mean, mosques were hugely infiltrated. You Absolutely. Know, so yeah, 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 yeah. So the thing is that neither of those things happened the way Minhaj told them on stage, according to The New Yorker. And this is, um, Minhaj insisted that though both stories were made up, they were based on emotional truth. And I think maybe later on in the episode we can get more, or we can get back into that a little bit about that that kind of, phrase emotional truth which gets leaned on a lot by people who are accused of I guess embellishing certain things for mm-hmm. storytelling purposes yeah um, but she Malone poses a really interesting question that can maybe start it off and and why I kind of am behind the New Yorker on this um, and she says when fibs are told to prove a social point rather than to elicit an easy laugh does their moral weight change and I think that's like a really interesting kind of jumping off point. I mean, I think first of all, anytime you're adding a word to truth, like mm. that's already a pr- you're you're giving yourself away, yeah, pretty badly. Yeah, you're yeah, already yeah. in the doghouse. Um, what was it that Colbert said called it truthiness? Truthiness, yeah. which he did so satirically. By the way, he was talking about a condition, not like he was like leaning on it as his. It was kind of gambit. Yeah. It seems tantamount to emotional truth as it, you yeah. know, as it related to two yeah. thousands era like Fox Media. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's interesting because I think a lot of like the the sort of stories that you hear comedians tell are like lies, but like you kind of know that they are. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, like maybe if you're really stupid, you believe all of these things actually happen to whatever stand up comedy you're fucking watching that night. Um, but like. Obviously, they probably did not, or if they did, they're highly embellished to make them funny because real mm-hmm. life rarely has this like very pat um, lesson giving nature, right? Mm. And I think that we all sort of have this like there's a kind of consent to that that people uh, I don't know give. 
um, where they're like, yeah, like I understand this isn't true, but like it's 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 funny. So like you know, I don't. It doesn't matter. Like mm. it's, the point is that it's a joke. But I think where it gets. And that's not really an interesting conversation. Like, if they'd just written, like, an article about, you know, uh, whatever stand- like Carrot Top stand-up act isn't actually based in fact, no one gives a fuck, right? right. But, like, this that is... That is a rubber chicken, for That example. is a rubber chicken. And he's got the craziest dick line shit now. What do they call you? Cum gutters. Yeah. Cum gutters. Yeah, he's got the craziest. They are called that. Um, Liz is not, not giving a happy the voice. The, there, was a, there was a pre-cum gutters <laughs> term for them, and I forget it what, now. What, what was it? You have to know, bro. Where are they? It's the V. The v? I think it might have been called the V. The V. The, these ones. Carrot Top's V in his pelvic area is intense. Anyways, an article in New Yorker about Carrot Top like lying in his comedy set. No one give a fuck about it. But I think this one kind of set off like a round of people talking right. about it like is is interesting to kind of think about because I mean Hodge wasn't doing this to like uh you know he wasn't just like telling a joke about an ex-girlfriend that like rejected him because he you know I don't know did something stupid but mm-hmm. it's because of of racism and specifically because of like uh anti-south asian racism um well, and Carrot Top is funny, like, yeah, above all carrots. else. What, what are the punchlines to these bits? I don't know. Do of Minaj's, it, that his, right? his daughter didn't die? Like, his yeah. baby, well, the his Mamanthan daughter wasn't poisoned. But that's why I Ha-ha. think it's like a very, let's use the word punchline loosely, right? Because it's sort of like the way that it's the, the quote-unquote jokes are structured is that you kind of laugh along the way until you get to the point that he's trying to make that you've like now learned at the end of the story and that one's not funny that's yeah. like something serious and real that now you're he's sort of illuminating as a kind of social phenomenon that maybe you know this experience in his life like well illustrates and we can all learn a little lesson here and so i do think the construction is a bit different um which is sort of why it feels more like it feels like this is like perfect for this conversation because it feels more like memoir than it feels like comedy. Yeah, right? you know what I mean. Well, he's he's attempting to be the comedian as truth teller, but he's sort of bypassed the first part of that, which is the comedy. Right. Like I see this a lot with um, journalists, the kind of journalists who wouldn't who would call themselves a journalist versus a reporter, say, or mm. a columnist or something, something more like the Anglo-Saxon term, as like AP Style has it for you, um, versus the highfalutin Latinate term and you know especially like for me kind of starting with the bush era and stuff like that this real kind of um this repetition of the idea that to be a journalist is to speak truth to power was it always struck me it's like there's there's a first job that you have to do and that's to speak truth or to report things or something the you know hopefully it raises to that level but when you when you run into the you know run into the situation, you're not paying your dues effectively, mm. like and it, it creates this weird sort of arena where everything is held you know held by the standard of its intentions, and that I felt like reading about Minaj, he he falls back on that where he's like he was like look I'm I'm trying to you know I'm up here fighting fucking racism and Islamophobia like so you know a couple eggs get broken I, mm. I I screw up a couple little facts my daughter didn't almost die from anthrax you know and you're why are you nitpicking right mm. yeah yeah although I I'm going to this would maybe be too much of a digression but I don't know if the journalist's job is to tell truth <laughs> well but I think it's uh, to tell a story point. 
Yeah. And it's to tell the story they want to tell, which is usually in there, I think, in the journalist's mind in service of some kind of truth. Right. But also a lot of eggs tend to get broken, including usually the people that the journalist is writing about. Well, a lot of omelets every day, yeah. Yeah. Um, I always thought that uh, to speak truth to power kind of accidentally revealed your audience. Mm. Sort of like, <laughs> how about speaking truth to all of us? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Speaking yeah. truth to the to the working man. Well, yeah. yeah, I mean that that brings to mind that that Janet Malcolm book. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Um, which is definitely, I think, really is is a really good illustration. It's a short book. If any of you guys are looking for something to read, it's about a hundred pages. It's much better than some of the books we're going to be talking about today. Very much so. <laughs> yes, uh, journalist and the murder. It's really good, but it sort of shows. Uh, Interviews from the the journalist side, and I, I think it, it 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 makes a lot of sense. But we were sort of talking the other day about kind of the history of this stuff. Uh, I guess more um, what led up to the kind of memoirs that we'll be talking about a little later. And I, I kept coming back to the phenomenon of confession magazines that I believe first started appearing in like the late eighteen hundreds in some form, but like really solidified during the early twentieth century mm. with like true. I think the, the biggest one was called True Stories, which began in 1920. And it's funny because I, you know, growing up, there was always sort of like a cultural touchstone to like where if you were like, you know, watching a movie that was based in the 1940s or whatever, whatever. I mean, even True Detective like takes its name from from one of these these, these style of confession magazines. Uh-huh. And there would be these magazines that are like to the modern reader with the modern eye, you'd be like, oh, well, these are all obviously fake stories. But at the time, were very much sold as true. And it, they, they were, they, you know, the 1920s and later is really when, like, magazines became more widespread and, like, the lower classes started reading them, essentially. And so they were sort of marketed towards towards poor people, essentially. And, like, these are all these true romance stories. And these are all these true cowboy stories, or these true war stories or something mm-hmm. like that. Also to teenagers, don't forget that, like, at 15 and 16, a lot of people were already in the workplace and were technically adults. Yeah, And no, were codified true. as teenagers, but yeah. And, like, they would always kind of have these uh, – I mean, this became more solidified, especially as, like, the publishing industry kind of got its legs more in the modern era. Um, but as, like, moralistic stories, right? Especially in, like, the, 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 the 30s through the 50s and 60s, I guess. You know, like, they would they would teach you and you would have, like, these, these, these sort of romance stories where, like, a woman would, would go on her wayward – because women were big readers of these – uh, would kind of like become like a wayward youth and, and take off with this, uh, you know, this kind of bad boy. And then she would learn her lesson and marry the preacher's son or whatever. Mm. Um, and I, it's 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 sort of interesting because, you know, obviously they, they were more sophisticated ones aimed at the upper classes. But like people who are reading these like, you know, week after week after week, you'd be like, well, there's no way these stories can actually all be true. And it's, it's I, you know, I've read some, some, uh, some interviews with people who used to write for these and some, you know, kind of papers about these. And it's like a lot of them did start like maybe their first year with a lot of true stories. And then the editors would just, of course, start to make them up because you need more content. But you also need content that fits a particularly moralistic storytelling pattern. Right. I mean, Elron Hubbard writes for these type magazines too. Really, you know, to put uh, to put the repute of the of the author's like veracity really in focus. There, <laughs> um, it's the these are the um, you know by the forties these are the stock and trade of all the like the major sci fi writers who come out of the war and like um, I don't know about Bradbury but uh, Heinlein, <laughs> Heinlein Hubbard. Um, and the, the big third. H's. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, yeah. Asimov? Oh, there's another. 
I don't think it was Asimov. Who am I missing? Um, Heinle- well, there was who was hanging out, ones. like who was you know physically hanging out with them in Southern California? Oh, Harlan Ellison, the other oh, age. Yes, H. sorry. Yes, who's an interesting kind of person to bring in the mix here? It's true. Yeah, I like him. Um, that these you know by this point these are these are boys magazines. Yeah. Um, and they've got to compete with each other. They're they're coming out on a regular schedule. It's industrial writing, you know. This, mm. you know, kind of the confession magazines you speak of, and the whole idea of a of a press for for like the regular person as opposed to the you know middle or upper upper class person bound for college or whatever of, of disposable literature, really. Yeah, like the like dime store westerns and like detective stories and. Like tabloid newspapers, the the crime sheets in Victorian England that they put out every day with that are are crime illustrated or yeah illustrated crime news I forget um, the shit from hell's based on um, there there's this rush of um, of yeah just dis- disposable literature all of a sudden and it's it's interesting how like. The framing has to be like this is a true story. This really happened because oftentimes, like some of them would be taken from like you know, kind of in in the same way that like a Law and Order SVU episode <laughs> will be like based on a New York Post story about you know some subway assault or something or you know whatever the bling ring. Right, um, but it'll have to work in some sort of teen trend. Exactly, that Ice like, T can explain as well. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. There will be a marriage talk right? in there. Yeah, yeah and there'll have to be, but there'll have to be like a kind of well, maybe less so on SVU, but like. In in these senses, like they'll have to sort of like impugn it with the morals of the day, right? Mm-hmm. And like that's what they they sort of become like really um, like Aesop fables. Yes, right? they kind become of. kind of fables. Yeah, well, and and the way like when you talk about it like that, it makes it seem kind of programmatic. Like they were that their editors there, and it's like remember, don't forget, you know, what's yeah. the moral? Remember at you know paragraph three, you should be introducing your thesis for the moral. But it's it's like that's not how the, these get written. They get written by people under crazy deadlines, writing, you know, paid by the word, have to do like 10 a week or whatever. Yeah. And it's just a natural, like, it's the natural rhythm into which writing and storytelling seems to seems to sort of fall. Like, mm-hmm. we don't, you know, Aesop's Fables is, you know, has the moral, is structured so that the moral just hits you in the face with it. Right. But, like, moral literature is like all over the map, like right up until, you know, right up until the end of World War II and postmodernism shifts things around a little bit. You know, there, there's there's highbrow moral literature. Yeah. Totally, The Pilgrim's Progress by Bunyan. Um, there are mixes of these like in the Canterbury Tales where you get the, the tales that are very upstanding and moral and then get completely inverted by the middle or lower cl- lower class tale tellers. You know, you get like the, the, the poker up the ass. And these sort of things, it's, 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 like it's not even a genre of literature. It's a mode. It's a mode of human kind of like storytelling and expression. What's the point of this, you know? Yeah. Everything having a point, a point or a punchline is usually mm. sort of uh, if there's a division between these two things. It, it's interesting t- uh, to me that like the, there was a an immediate recognition of the need for like these to be, I mean obviously probably in, in terms of like boosting sales, but, like, these stories need to be true, right? Like, if you're reading a story about white slavers, which was a really big Mm. 
popular, popular form of this. Uh, they hated like Chinese with their opium dance. Exactly. Yeah. Like the, the, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like if you were reading like a white slaver story in 1920, like you needed it to be at least tell you it was true because if not, then you're essentially just reading <laughs> pornography, right? Yeah. Like you're reading, you're reading either torture or just regular sexual or porn. Or racial pornography. Racial porn. I mean, that was yeah. a huge part of the kind of like captivity tales or like, like the stories about you know, the girl who was raised half Indian, half white, like all yeah. of that, like create, which I don't know, like Liz Warren probably read and was, was like, oh, say, I got a yeah. great idea from and, here. And then you know what? That girl became a senator. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's the moral of that tale. Mm-hmm. Um, or, I mean, yeah, the, all over the place. It was like a way to kind of, I guess, like you're saying, a sort of way to get those jollies out, but then not to feel so bad about it, I guess, and also to reinforce a lot of horrible, horrible stereotypes. Like beyond beyond law and order and stuff like that, there's modern day examples of this just being spit out by like, especially like that weird fringe right wing media that's kind of started to emerge, mm-hmm. kind of came out of Christian cinema, where there's like, like Daily Wire cinema. Yeah, yeah. Um, I forget the names, um, but there's the run. <laughs> Run, hide, flee, hunt, run, hide, fight. Yes, the yeah. uh, the Columbine story that really leans hard into you know the action and the gore of it. Um, the Hunter Biden story, which was that called the Hunter Biden story? I forget. I know no, it's like a I think year it was old. just called like Hunter or something. It was I I never watched it because a bunch of my friends watched it together, and I was I believe I had COVID nineteen. Oh, I'm sorry when that happened. And uh, so I wasn't able to. But better, yeah. better watch in a group. Hunter, a Biden story, maybe. <laughs> um, Horrible title. Which? Uh, what? Well, oh, my son Hunter. I'm sorry. Oh. Thank yeah, you. That was he's it. my Hunter. With um, my with, son Hunter. Oh. What's her face from Star Wars? Gina Carino. Yeah. Cancel the the cancel. We we mentioned her in a previous episode. I think yeah. everyone thought we were talking about Xena, Warrior Princess, <gasps> Not, Lucy Lawless. A, a, a part of part of a continuum there. Part of a lineage. I feel like. Yeah. You know what? Our yeah. listeners would. They got very upset about this. They got this. very upset oh. about this. They were they, defending. They love Zena? Lucy Lawless. Oh, yeah. But oh here's my thing. I'm Law and Order. Yeah. Lucy Lawless. But that's why. <laughs> I can't think of someone worse. That's why the two of you together would. Oh my God. That'd be a real, yeah. That'd be a real Starsky and Hutch. My son Hunter is giving me like my left foot. <laughs> <laughs> my son Hunter. He's simple, but he means well. Yeah. Swing blade. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, but it's, I mean, the funny part of that movie is that it's, you know, it's very obviously dry. Oh, Gina Karina, by the way, plays a. Um, Secret Service agent who's still attached to the Bidens, who is the like kind of Greek narrator of everything, but oh, is just like you're never gonna believe what this guy's up to. Like over her shoulder, she's speaking directly into the camera. Mm. Has one of the worst fitting suits on I've ever seen. Interesting. It just, like, immediately betrays the level of production value yeah. that they put into this thing. Oh, I want to see the suit. But so they're like, they're like, you, you're like, Where is oh, it you're gonna be disgusted by. <laughs> I think I just stole it from a uh, pirate bear or whatever mm. it's called these days. Um, but, you know, obviously the whole thing is supposed to be like like you're like the depravity that this guy has gotten up to, presumably, I guess, on the public dime or because he's related to the president, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then they and then they depict it. And they depict it like with hilarious mistakes throughout it. Like they're this is a movie made by people who have very clearly have very little experience with drugs. Yeah. Um he's smoking at one point he's smoking uh, crack out of a like a weed pipe, which yeah, I guess that you can do rookie. sort of really rookie, do. You, but um, no way. But also, is that do they make do they talk about that or do you think that was also low production? About like, like 
That was the oh, result like that was of on like, purpose. It, it there were so many of them. I kept a shit. I might actually have it. I kept a list of weird things they did with drugs. I mean, there was some classic stuff that could you know be in any movie where he just has like this you know nondescript bottle of pills that look like that. Yeah. you know the pieces in Doctor Mario. Those are so good. Um, and, and he's you know like throwing them in his mouth like um like all all flustered. Um, he. Cuts lines of coke and then does one and then just wipes away all the like the, the mountain of coke, <laughs> like which was <laughs> he, sort of like man yeah is, does do it show yeah. it, but he's like having sex a lot and like you oh, know, yeah, it's, yeah it's it's but like that's, sweating the whole fucking time there is yeah. a sort of like pornographic it is I guess quality to the I feel like some of the I mean they put out listen I have I'm gonna say probably two or three dozen pictures of Hunter Biden naked. In various <laughs> yeah. states, of, oh, they, didn't they introduce that on the floor of Congress? He's in the official congressional record. Yeah, his, his dick penis is, is in, the in the congressional record, record. Yeah. and it's like, yeah, there is a certain like like uh, pornographic element to it for sure. Of course, yeah, and the moral sort of justifies it, I think, very much, and especially you know with the books we're 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 discussing to get in there. Um, there's like a classic figure from my childhood, which is like the little old lady who sits and watches daytime TV. And then, like, calls her friend to be like, are you, "Like, can you believe how like shameless these these women on these shows are? Like, it's just yeah. fil- it's filthy, Agnes, you know." And and but who sits there and watches it and watches it and watches it with, um, you know, but is against it. Well, it's it's and inter- can live with themselves and go to church and be the upstanding person they are because you know because they're doing this, you know, not yeah. to enjoy it. They do it every fucking day. They clearly enjoy it, but. They're on the other side of, um, you know. They're on the other side of those battle lines that are being kind right? of drawn there. Yeah, yeah. The and the moral, moral and the moral stance functions to like allow people access to these sorts of worlds. Well, it's it's interesting to bring up sort of daytime TV because, um, you know, that was that sort of a kind of continuation of the confessional magazine, mm-hmm. right? And it's the like, tabloid, yeah. And it's oh, yeah. Ha- yeah, yeah. It's basically, like, just tabloid video. Yeah, yeah. To like have. Um, you know, what I I'm 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 serially addicted to having sex with eighty year old women, and I, yeah. I bring that up because I know a guy who was on Jerry Springer. Uh, I think it was for that one. I've met a few. I've known a few people um, who were. Uh, I believe actually the guy from the Locust. At one I was going to say, this. yeah, the guy from the. I didn't know him, but he, I knew. They about pretended this. to be gay, or he pretended to be gay with someone else from Gravity Records, yes, right? Yeah, and that his, yeah. And but one of them had a girlfriend who found out, so they fought each other. Yeah, I w- that was something that Sally Jesse Raphael was like very upset about getting kind of roped into because she was like a real journalist or like thought of herself as a real journalist, and when she was doing daytime. In that era, she was really pushed by her producers to do more Springer-style TV because Race that to was the bottom. what— Yeah. Yeah, like, you know, get the bad teens on, get the crackheads on, whatever the, whatever the fuck yeah. is on these shows. Ked, don't cash, know. Me out, cash me outside. Yeah, but I'm talking—but 80s version, 80s, yeah, so whatever 80s, that 80s, was. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Mostly club kids and goths. Yeah, yeah and there then, was like— And a, then gay people who are like their own exotic kind of animal right, at the time. Right, right. Like, yeah. yeah, whatever the like weird safari is they're putting up on <laughs> on daytime TV for the housewives at home. But like, she gave an interview. This was not that long ago. I think it was in New York Magazine, maybe. Where she just was very upset about how it all turned out and felt very betrayed herself by her own producers mm-hmm. for kind of like pushing her in that direction. But that is what was 
I mean, selling, you know, Oprah included, right? She's the kind of grand dom of all of this. Right. And she had the gravitas that, you know, kind of gets shaved away over the course of the 90s. I was thinking about that period as sort of like the rise of the producer mm. versus the like uh, versus the anchor woman or reporter or figurehead, um, you know, running the show, whoever's name is on it. Right. Kind of ceases to run the show. Couldn't possibly because there's just so many moving parts and they're doing a daily, you know, or four days a week kind of thing. Um, and then that leads us kind of more or less directly into reality TV. Yeah. Where you don't even need the figurehead who's a supposed or a former supposed journalist or a journalist or whatever. Um, and you can just find some schmucks off the street who you're not even paying to run around and do whatever. Um, well, Oprah herself actually appears in. A bit of, I don't know, part of the story about one of these memoirs that we want to talk about. So maybe we should talk about some of these books. I This whole genre that we were kind of like focusing on, this sort of memoir, the like fake memoir. I don't know what else to call it, fake right? Fake memoir. Yeah, it's a fake memoir. It's a, it's, a, a, it's a lie memoir. Yeah, it's a French word, memoir. Oh, my God. I'm sorry. Okay. How would you like mem- <laughs> memoir? Yeah, sorry that I was raised with a little bit of culture. <laughs> <laughs> so the fake memoir, I mean, you mentioned the kind of how um, the confessional magazines, you know, kind of geared towards like young boys and those being these kind of like tales that that really, you know, all these old sci-fi readers were kind of, or writers were sort of like feeding and that makes all the sense. But there, it really comes into its own when it starts targeting the teenage girl. Uh huh. Oh, for sure. There was a big one Epstein. that was very, um, that even I think I read when I was a teen called Go Ask Alice. Oh yeah, hugely. Um, yeah, I remember that one being like. Maybe we should start with this one. They yeah. taught that at my at my high school as nonfiction in. Yeah, and this is like 1999 or so. So it's you know first of all it's a 30 year old book by that point. Um, but it's also like it's also completely made up. You yeah. Know? So wait, what? So give our listeners a little rundown. What is Go Ask Alice? So Go Ask Alice is the classic like um, teen drug tragedy book. It's it's where we get the the great line: "Another day, another blowjob." Where <laughs> a girl, modern day Scarlett O'Hara, another day, another blowjob. Yeah, yeah. Tomorrow and they tomorrow. Just, they, they didn't even. They tried to teach me the Odyssey, and then I had to go to an alternative school. We didn't even get to read this. Well, this was for, I think, like a level down. We had like a three-tier sort Mm -hmm. of, you know, sort of metropolis-esque structure to our school. And this was not what they were teaching the like college track kids. Although I guess everybody was kind of a college track kid. Anyway, um, but so Alice is not the name of the supposed – written by Anonymous. Go ask Alice. Mm. A a teenage diary. The hacker. And now now a Twitter account. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, well, yeah. you guys got me good. Um, I'm, ke- I'm I keep because we're this this whole discussion kind of verges on hoaxing. I keep waiting for the shoe to drop with oh, you guys. No, like, no, what am I'm I? Not, you know, I'm not. We're not tricking this hoax. Yeah, <laughs> when the walls will fall down, like the Japanese. God, I hope I hope they don't. Nathan Fielder's <laughs> about to walk True. through the door. Don't worry about oh, it. Okay, I would not go to that. Um, anyway, it's you know. It's purported to be the diary of this teen girl who took one hit of acid and then that led to her, you know, basically trying every other drug within a phenomenally short period of time, uh, having sex with guys, getting raped by guys, and then ultimately dying, at which point the diary is handed over but from her parents to its editor, a woman named Beatrice Sparks, who lives um, 
I believe in Provo, Utah, maybe not at that period of time. She's from kind of like Idaho, Utah. She's a Mormon housewife, mm-hmm. basically, who comes into this diary and then shops it around, except that there is no providence to it. When asked, she's never able to reproduce the original diary. Um, there's evidence that she submitted this diary as a manuscript with a different title to Art Linkletter's publishing house. After, you know, his famously, I think his daughter or his daughter's friend jumps out a window on acid mm. and he goes, Art Linkletter goes like way hard against acid. And Sparks wow. is like, oh, perfect opportunity. Right? Um, <laughs> and it may be, and it may be the source of her inspiration mm. um, for making this, but, uh, but it takes off. It's huge. Yeah. She, you know, I think she was a little miffed that it ended up being, like her name didn't make it to the cover of a lot of the early editions. That as editor, she was somewhere on, you like know. Like the inside. Yeah, flag. on the copyright page or the yeah, title yeah, page or yeah. whatever. Um, it was, you know, they they stuck with by anonymous mm-hmm. on there. And it's a hit. Like it's 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 huge. It really, you know, and, and it makes its way into schools really quick for. Which is pretty crazy. I mean, right. it's like uh, even for something to be like so popular for then it to be taught in schools. It's like to make that jump. No, like imagine that jump now. <laughs> it would be so bizarre. But it really was. I mean, I remember. I mean, I went to a Catholic school, but I remember being shown it as a sort of. Like, I mean, like, they're like, oh, we're like, it wasn't taught to us, but it was like available. And if you wanted to read, if you wanted to talk to anyone about it, they were available for you to talk to them. Yeah. Whole shelf full of copies. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. 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 Um, Anyway, after it's a hit, she, like, there's, she has a second book, which is a legitimate, like, a, a family, also in Utah whose son committed suicide and he kept a journal, comes to her and is like, hey, like, you know, hey, we know about you through Go Ask Alice. Um, like, we'd like, we'd like to, you know, if, if you want it, to give you our son's journal. Um, his name was Alden. Shoot, I forget his last name. His name was Alden. Mm-hmm. And she, you know, explains that she's going to, like, change names and stuff like that. But she, she basically rewrites the whole thing. She, she, I think they give her, or when Alden's family kind of looked through the finished product, they recognized, like, 20 out of the 200 some odd entries as being the actual diary pages, and most of the rest of it is just completely made up. And it go like it goes from the real diary, which is about a kid who was kind of struggling with depression and was interested in kind of like Eastern philosophy and may have screwed around a little bit with some drugs, um, into a kid who gets dragged into the occult and is sacrificing cats and um, basically like loses his soul to Satan and to a very like kind of Mormon housewife version of Satan. Yeah. Um, you know, with this very structured organization of Satanists who've just, you know, are, are waiting around the corner to pick kids up from the second they, um, you know, um, from the second they like pop a Papa Benny, a tab or t- or, t- or tab up, yeah. Um, go on a trip. Um, anyways, and it comes out as Jay's journal, and there's the the family raises a fucking stink about it, but it never really gets out of Utah, and it you know it it discredits her locally, uh huh. But it doesn't it doesn't really make national press, and she kind of goes like she doesn't have another book until the '90s, but it just doesn't doesn't have an effect on. Her, you know, her reputation doesn't, it doesn't not go ask Alice off the bookshelves of school libraries mm. or anything like that. 
But she comes back into the picture in the 90s and writes, I think, seven more diaries. Although one one isn't a diary. One is she is supposed transcripts from clinical— um, Like a psychologist thing, right? She claims she was a psychologist and she had a psychological practice in some nondescript city, mm. which sounds like New York, has a 92nd Street— this is a book called Almost Lost, which is about a teen kind of runaway who gets involved in a street gang. Uh, they meet at some storm drain. It feels like she had like just watched Ninja Turtles, basically, yeah. to write this thing. And then the street Great. gang like yeah. rules the school and makes everybody bow down before them. In like the hallways, physically? yeah, like a genuflection, and they, and they even call it a genuflection, which is like this is a fifteen-year-old kid who's in a street gang, genuflecting to the wanderers, yeah, yeah. Like being like too. today we today's we gonna we gonna make them genuflect to us the the <laughs> harpoons, you yeah, know, yeah, 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 um, yeah. It's this bizarre, like, and this is um, she writes one about AIDS, which I love, called "It Happened to Nancy." Mm. Um, Nancy got. Well, I forget if if, if her name's no, her name is Nancy in the book. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Um, she goes, um, she goes to a. She starts her diary the day she's going to a Garth Brooks concert. There is a wild brawl in the middle of this of said concert, which is in I think somewhere outside of Greenville, South Carolina, supposedly. Um, and she gets separated from her friends and is like having a freak out. I think she's supposed to be fourteen or fifteen uh, in the diary, and. A young gentleman comes over and offers her, you know, offers her help finding her, getting back to her friends, makes her laugh or whatever, and she like gets it, either gets his number or he figures out where she goes to middle or high school. I forget, and she starts like a slight dalliance with this guy, which lasts like two or three encounters before he like graphically rapes her and gives her AIDS, which she later discovers. And then it turns out this guy's like in who claimed he was in high school is in like his late twenties and mm-hmm. is a serial rapist who's been hitting middle schools and high schools throughout um South Carolina. I guess near maybe near the research triangle, I forget. But um and like first thing she does is, you know, what any teen well, you went you were you were brought up Catholic. I wasn't brought up Catholic, but I did oh, go no, to Catholic school. Oh, no, no, no. You went to Catholic school? I was going to say the first <laughs> thing she does is call a nun to make sure that yeah, she has not those. committed a mortal sin versus a venal sin. Mm. This is the night of the rape. Okay. Um, and then later she you know, has to go to a doctor because she has AIDS. And then there's a funny thing that Beatrice Sparks does is she starts writing herself into these books. Like at the end of the mm, diary. That's so um, interesting. Nancy is like, good, like, I've got amazing news. Like my – she goes to live with her aunt, and she's like, my aunt knows this amazing woman named Dr. Sparks. She's like, I, she actually helped edit that book, Go Ask Alice, which I read when I was 12. If your doctor's name is Dr. Sparks, you got to get the <laughs> fuck out of there, man. Nothing good is happening. No, not at Dr. all. Dr. Sparks. I, you know, I think that the genre of, like, found diary, I mean, first of all, there's obviously— The Hitler Diaries. Well, there's that, but I'm. But what I'm going to say is that there's the when we talk about the the pornographic element, the the found teenage girl diary is obviously its own has its own kind of um, pornographic, (laughs) uh, uh, you know, vibe to it. That's um, quite classic in form, (sighs) but also I think. The the even outside of that, the sort of like, oh, we just found this diary and this is telling this story was sort of like a, a classic uh trope in in these types of moralist kind of literature, if we want to call it that. Yeah. And then at some point it shifts into 
just memoir, like person writing their own story. It's no longer, yeah. Because, I mean, Sparks is inventing people. Yeah, like there's no longer this sort of distance of the sort of like artifact that's found. Right. And it's sort of like now we're inventing our own stories. And after Sparks' experiments with actually having a real, you know, or a formerly living subject and using a diary, like the the last seven books, like there's no information on anybody in them. You can't really peg down where they take place. She's actually, you know, in the AIDS one, Nancy lives in South Carolina, but her friend sneaks out of her house to go to a park in Utah with her boyfriend, which I think was just like they didn't – she was going to replace that with something in South Carolina, but the editor mm-hmm. never caught it. Mm-hmm. There's just all these tells. It's really sloppy. Like, And it's and if you read – like, I think I told you if you just read two of them back to back, you're like one, these are the same person. Clearly written by the same person. Yeah. Like they, yeah. There's so many like really distinctive like uh, ticks of the style and like word use um, that – like one is funny to think of like a fourteen or fifteen year old boy or girl saying, but also it's just like it's like there's no way these you know two people these two teenagers separated twenty years apart are using the same weird made up slang terms like it's the groats you know yeah. no no like, people yeah you know, it's not but like, I mean things wait, come out oh twenty years the everything groats, goes back the groats, me, it's the groats is good or bad I think it's good yeah that's that's from the seventies oh hey. it should Nancy be ba- okay wait to, we're gonna flip it yeah and so it's the groats means now it's bad because groats sounds it's bad groats is groats, well, groats it sounds is like, like is a byproduct yeah. of oats, right? Groats are it's are they the better of- one? It kind of like curds and whey, you know, that they're they're all mm. they're they're byproducts of milk manufacture. Or if my man said that's the groats, a- I'd be like, oh yeah, I think it's gross too. Like, oh yeah, I oh, met, right, I right, met right. this this cute girl. She's the groats. I'd be like, oh <laughs> man, what's wrong? What's what kind of goiter does she have? Yeah, <laughs> but what it- are those welts? But it's the Groats' <laughs> 70s slang. So this may, you know, yeah, maybe wait, you, you, the context, you know, I always think context is king. Well, like, it really helps explain that. Um, the 90s, it's more stuff like, um, it, not to bring back Nancy with AIDS, but she calls everything Maggie and Mag, which I think is short for Magnificent. Mm. Which I wow. think I think Sparks maybe read somebody, like, talk about, oh, like a talking magazine? about, like, well, I think, my guess, and and what I love about these like weird, very clearly fictitious books is trying to figure out exactly how the lies work and where they come from. Um, my guess on Mag is that she heard somebody like a Smiths fan calling something Tariff, and she was like, "Oh, that's what kids do. They just they take just, they just take the first part of a word. They just abbreviate. Yeah, they yeah <laughs> exactly. I mean, to be fair." People do be abbreviated. People do be abbreviated. I mean, she's yeah. not wrong. It's just like there's something. It's it's you know it's that weird thing where it's like you know is this jazz and you're like well it isn't but I can't explain why exactly they're wrong. Mm. It just, it's like you didn't do it. It didn't work. Yeah. Well, to me, jazz is all about the notes that you don't play. <laughs> Same with slang. Slang is I mean, all I'm about not the playing words notes that, all the time. You sl- know? Slang is about all of the letters that you don't use in the word. Yeah. True. <laughs> So another one of these books that you guys wanted to talk about was something called A Child Called It, which I had actually never heard of. You never saw that on like a supermarket impulse buy rack? No. Like next to the next to the inquiry. Next to the reader's digest. Or next to the reader's digest. It actually <laughs> I'm sure it was like at my dentist office well, when I was a kid. It's shape, it is the exact format of Reader's Digest. So it let is. me tell you about my like, my first encounter with a child called It is when I was in monarch school. Uh, when I got sent away to like a kind of, re- re- well, 
listeners of our game series will remember. But I get, you know, I got sent away to this kind of reform school, I guess you could call it. Uh, and I remember specifically two books that I read because I read them back to back. You were only allowed to read the books that they had on this one shelf there. And so it's like you couldn't like import your own or anything like that. It was mm. like you had to read the books that they had. And uh, I read A Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and actually I read Gulag Archipelago there, which is also, I will tell you this, that's another, let's, say, let's call that maybe a little bit of autofiction mm. on both of those. Um, and, uh, at least according to Solzhenitsyn's wife, uh, and, uh, and I read A Child Called It, and I remember reading Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovic and A Child Called It basically back to back and being like, dude, this guy had it way worse than Ivan Denisovic, man. (laughs) Like, this six-year-old boy is, is, and I remember being like, because at the, you know, I'm 14 years old and like, I, I suppose like in comparison to some kids, I was kind of a worldly 14-year-old, but not really, but I could still like think I'm like, well, I think if you drank bleach, you'd die. And I remember like reading several instances in the book and I was like, there's no way, you know what I mean? Like I understand that the, that, that, you know, a child abuse is certainly an, an horrible endemic thing that people do horrible things to kids, but I'm like, these specific incidents that he recounts are almost comically absurd. And I was always in my head, I was like, I don't know, man, like there's something that seems weird about this book. And then when I got out and later when I got access to the internet, I realized that like the book is is essentially, you know, it is it is basically this guy's tale of his, his early life uh, when he was a child who was not named anything but it. Uh, that Wait, it's, what? Well, you know, like how your parents give you a name, right? <laughs> that's the premise of the book. That's what the title comes. I only the read a little bit. I'm just going to say it. I skimmed yeah. it. Obviously, I do my homework, but, but I did skim it. But the idea is that his name that his mom gave him was it? It's, well, No, she reverts to she, calling She reverts it to calling him it. He was originally born yeah. Dave Pelzer. Uh-huh. Well, I suppose Dave David. Pelzer is the last name. Davey David. David. Yeah, David Pelzer. Um, but uh, his mother... Uh, just goes to dislike him so much that she refers to him as it, and uh, she depersonalizes. She depersonalizes him, him and 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 takes his name away. Probably in order so that she could commit the abuse. Okay, makes sense. Go on. Part and parcel. Yeah, and it's uh, I I I it's always stayed with me because I actually stole a copy of it from Monarch, and then um, it was at and listen, I've been in a in a. Million little pieces style, couple of institutions, in my mm-hmm. life, and it has been a mainstay in basically not all of them, but multiple of them. And every time I see it, I'm always like, "Yes, they have a child called it," because it's so like it's supposed to be this really inspiring tale. But when you read it, you're like, "This just doesn't seem real." And it turns out it's it's maybe not. Well, it's also way more graphic than you know. I I would see it at old old ladies' houses. I think my grandma had a copy. Or again, mm. on it a is super, very, it does feel very grandma coded at the supermarket checkout. It has a it has a fucking angel on the cover mm. holding up, and like and this kid <laughs> with this unfortunate bowl cut yes. on it. Um, I was know, that I part of the, the abuse? The, the, the child model they used for the cover of a child called. Oh, I wonder it. where he's at. He and he and the Nevermind. I was about to say baby. he and the Nevermind. They, they should hang out or have a band. Yeah, yeah. hook up. Um, they should both write memoirs. Oh yeah, um, memoir nation. Um, so I first read it because it got thrown out a window and hit me on the head. On, Literally on Collier Street. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Someone threw a child called it at you. 
um, I don't know if it was at me. Like, I think mm. I might have just been in the right place at the right time, you know? Wow. Um, but I, I got bonked in the head with, uh, with my original copy. Oh, my God. Of A Child And you're Elk. like, well. Now's the time. Yeah, yeah got to read I'd it. Seen it. I'd seen it forever. Um, and I, I remember, like, upon my first reading, I, I assumed it was going to be. So this guy is published by the same people who did Chicken Soup for the Soul, right? Mm. Yeah, Which was oh, huge. Definitely read those. Huge in the I 90s. I think actually that was a signed reading. Oh, Jesus. I'm sorry. We had this one. I've talked about it before, but we had this one very weird religious class by a woman oh, who was. Yeah. An alcoholic, and she would just roll in the TV in the old school style. You know, they roll it yeah. in. It's got the big thick TV on. Strap down. Yeah. Yeah, and um, put on Oprah. <laughs> but I think, and literally, and I think she was drinking during this. But um, she assigned definitely stories of Chicken Soup for the Soul. Right. So I'm very familiar with their work. <laughs> I mean, it was it was unavoidable in like the late nineties. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was. There were uh, they several still? chicken soup version. It wasn't. Oh God! There was chicken soup for, for the, the teen soul. There was chicken yeah. soup for the college student soul. I think there yeah. might have been a chicken soup for like the like pre college, pre collegiate like soul. There was ones Probably for moms. Soul. Chicken soup was, for the Korean. They got fairly granular, I think. Oh, it just it just kept going, yeah. Um, and it was, I mean, my association with them was what I'd see it. It, um, I would predominantly see it in people's houses who didn't have many other books. As right? of twenty twenty three, there have been three hundred and twenty one <laughs> Chicken Soup for the Soul publications. What's the last one? Uh, oh, I let's, let's see. Let's see how weird it's going. Oh, list are the furries of in there. Wikipedia for Chicken Soup for the Soul is longer than World War Two. Come on, furry soul. Chicken Soup for the Soul. Uh, recovering for traumatic brain injuries. Um, <laughs> chicken Soup for the Shopper Soul. Chicken Soup for the Single Soul. I like uh, chicken Soup for the Soul. The story behind the song. Chicken soup for the tea lover's soul. Uh, chicken soup touched by an angel. Um, oh, chicken crossover. soup for the woman's soul. Like the Flintstones and the Jetsons. Yeah. A second chicken soup. Oh, sopa de pollo para el alma de los padres. Uh, what do we have? Chicken soup for the network marketer's soul. Chicken soup for the NASCAR soul. Chicken soup for the mother of preschoolers soul. There are a lot of souls that chicken soup is being made for. But they, yeah, it's the same company that published A Child Called It, right? Yeah. And in the beginning of A Child Called It, in his, uh, let me tell you this. I don't know what it's called. You're you're a writer. Hmm. You should know. You know how, like, the words are on a page, right? Like <laughs> yeah, a book? typesetting, kerning. Whatever, bro. The, you know, the words are on the page. Right, right. The, the distance between the words and the top of the page. The margins? The margins. The margins on A Child Called It. Go crazy! It's like two inches down. Well, yeah, you that's see, when like yeah. you're a kid and you're like, yeah, I can write five pages. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's yeah. Also, it's like you guys ever see big, big letter edition books oh. for old people? Yeah. Yes, like, I guess it's all replaced by Sudoku now. now. Yeah, huh? they do that for phone now. I met a guy recently. This who's, is 100 for old people. Yeah, I met a guy side. recently who had big shit on his phone. Young, young gentleman. Uh, I can't remember where I met him. But he was like, this is like a thing you're supposed to do to not strain your eyes. And I was like, that's interesting. Just disregard. I'll never do that. But I guess people who don't have eye things do it. Anyways. Classic received wisdom. Yeah. So this book is still – the author of this book still maintains that it is his true memoir. Right. As Belden calls it. Well, well, what was surprising was the Chicken Soup for the Soul books all have a very kind of um, glad-handed sentimental – 
like sort of tone. There's there's mm-hmm. a range of stories in them. They're effectively an anthology. Yeah, you feel good. Like but they're inspirational. Some, some soup. Yeah. And it's it's inspirational. It says so on the on the fucking back. It may say self-help slash inspiration or whatever. And this is packaged exactly the same way, I believe. I believe it's, you know, a uh, category tag for shelving at bookstores is, yeah, self-help, inspiration. Mm-hmm. Um, Angel on the cover, right? Big print for women, or, I'm uh, sorry, <laughs> big print for old folks, uh-huh. <laughs> old ladies. Um, <laughs> and old men, let's and, and, and old men, old men don't read, though. That's the thing. They maybe, just watch World Maybe War the racing papers. That's, you know, I'm going to, um, but then but when you read it, it's, it's like Brett Easton Ellis. It's graphic, graphic descriptions of like torture, mm. or of a, of a of a you know. It's never really clear what age he is. The timeline is almost impossible to fucking follow. You're like, is he is he four or is he eleven? Like grades get mentioned, but then you know he kind of his mom tricks the principal into holding him back from some grades. It's just like this like kind of phantasmagorical like. Just nightmare. Like, imagine all the most like awful things you could ever do to a child, child. and all of that happened to it. All of it happened to him, and and there's no way to tell. Did this, you know, did, like one bad thing happen every year? Was this all over the course mm. of like oh, a six month period? A six month yeah. period. He he kind of goes back and forth. And it it starts when he's in first grade, uh, and continues until he's taken away from his family at twelve in fifth grade. Uh, in later books, he claims that it started when he was four, before preschool, um, and it's just and you just don't get a sense of it from the book. The book is written like fairly effectively, I gotta say, from kind of from like a child's perspective. Yeah, it does. It does sort of like it does. You almost suspend belief of like thinking that like oh no, like a fully grown adult Air Force veteran wrote this. Right. It's actually because it's written in a very childlike way. Right? Can you uh, read a little bit of it? I would love to read a specific passage which has stayed oh. with me since I first read it. Now, Liz, don't worry because this is not true. Uh, yeah, that's what worries me. <laughs> I knew Mother had something hideous on her mind. As soon as they left, she brought out one of Russell's soiled diapers. She smeared the diaper on my face. I tried to sit perfectly still. I knew if I moved, it would only be worse. I didn't look up. I couldn't see Mother standing over me, but I could hear her heavy breathing. After what seemed like an hour, Mother knelt down beside me and in a soft voice said, Eat it. So there's multiple instances where he has to eat poo-poo in this book. and No, just that one in the first one. He, well, he, dog poo. Later, he after publishing it yeah. and writing his teenage memoirs and then his adult memoirs, in the teenage memoirs, he tells one of his foster parents that he was forced to eat dog shit. Yes, and I forgot. I, yeah, yeah, you're correct because there is a third addition to that, or another addition to that, where in a later interview he clarifies that it had worms in it, and you can sort of see the logic that he's working with here because what what Pelzer's Pelzer in his life, you know, he goes through this like. You know, he writes these books when he's a fully grown adult. Like, he's married, he's he's been in the Air Force, like, he has a job, and he starts writing this memoir. And, in fact, he makes it seem that or – it, or it kind of just seems like his first wife left him because she's like, what the fuck are you writing? Like, this is like, what are you talking about? Mm. Well, he was also working like it was with— weird erotic fiction. Yeah. yeah, or just like, did this—like, I don't think this happened to you. Like, mm. why did you write this? He was part of a program coming out of the Air Force. He was in the Air Force for a while. Yeah. Um, like, up until the Gulf War. And then he comes 
like the Air Force helps him get into a program where he promotes foster care, mm-hmm. like awareness, and he goes to like it seems like he gives speeches to like the Rotarians and the JCs and stuff like that. He gets a couple awards, which he always puts in his bio. Always. Um, like, you know, top young American, these kind of things. Um, for for his work with foster children, and this kind of comes right at the tail of that. Um at the tail end of that work, written in 1995, and and yeah, he he ends up, leave, you know, he and his first wife don't stay together. However, that kind of went down, um, and he ends up marrying his editor mm-hmm. from the publishing house that did the Chicken Soup books and did his Health Communications Incorporated, uh, based out of Florida. See, um, if you marry your editor, they can't testify they can't, against yeah, you. Yeah, they can't testify against it's you. It's true. Um, well, and then when he gets to writing about his later. Life, he just savages his fucking first wife. Um, he like, hates her. Doesn't even do the thing where you know he started like, oh, it started off real romantic. It was like, oh, was, we were in love with each other. Then there were then cracks began to show. She starts. He starts her off as basically like, what do you call it? A base bunny, like someone who's oh, trying no. to like, yeah, 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 like trying to get benefits, ho- hook up with a pilot, get pregnant, so then get married and get like you know uh, military wife benefits, yeah, stuff like that, and like just allows you one at that. And she's a drunk, um, and he has no idea what to like what to do with her. Um, she's constantly just disappearing. All his none of his friends show up to his wedding because they're like they think this is a bad idea. Mm-hmm. But it's um. And this and this is weird because you. you That's know. a classic lie. I'm sorry. That's classic lie. No one is not going to someone's wedding because they think they shouldn't get married. You're not yeah, like I'm protesting. I'm going your to wedding. the wedding. You go to the wedding and you're like, to your seatmate. You're, you're like, like, man, I don't really think that idea. They're like, marrying, yeah, this. Huh? Is the, what, and then you take bets on when yeah. they're going to get divorced, yeah. and then you go get drunk at the party, and you try to catch the bouquet. Yeah, and then you don't say anything until later when your homie comes to you and is like, oh my god, I should have never got married, and then you're like. Homie, I love you. I didn't say anything at the time because I'm your friend and I support you, but I agree you shouldn't have never got married. Right? Yeah. Then well, that's how that goes down. So classic lie. But it also fits in, in, in Pelzer's scheme of his life, which is just like bad things can't stop happening to this mm. dude. Even once he's gotten out of, you know, first first he's at home, he's mother's prisoner, and he's having shit smeared on his face and thrown downstairs and choked unconscious. And stabbed. Stabbed. His mother stabs him. Um, later... That's the creepy. stabbing becomes her throwing a knife into him. Oh, whoa, like a which, shuriken? Uh, but I think that's how his brother remembered it. <laughs> throwing a shuriken at your knife. son? Yeah. Um, and, then, and then he's in foster care, and, and everybody, everybody hates him because he's a foster yeah. child. But he's also discrediting potential witnesses to his lies. Always, yeah. Well, that's, that's the funny thing, right? Because Pelzer is in a house with two and then later three brothers because one is Four. born. Four, yeah. He's the fifth, or he is the second of five, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it, New York Times eventually, uh, he refuses to give his brothers, you know, he changes the names or whatever, but his, right. his uh, which he says is to protect his brothers, but he refuses uh, to, uh, to, to like, hook interviewers up with them, and then this, this New York Times thing comes out, is that 2003 or 1990? I think it's 2003, the New York yeah. Times article or comes two. out. Yeah. Two, yeah, yeah, but yeah. early 2000s. But it's after the third book. Uh, yeah. Comes out, and they actually get in touch with his, his brother, uh, one of his brothers. Trying to basically verify these stories? Yes. Okay. And they're like, did this happen? His brother's like, nothing, no. His like, brother and his grandmother. Yeah, they're like, "This nothing like this happened. We were the little three musketeers. Like, you know, we had like... Were they know, aware and, of the publication of all of this? I, I mean, they must so. have yeah. been. I mean, one of the brothers, one of the brothers um, 
purportedly stands by stands by the account and says that once Pelzer was taken out and put in foster care, that he was then the the target of his mom's abuse. Um, that mm-hmm. she just shifted gears towards him. Although when he writes about talking to his brother later on in his life, he was like, yeah, we wouldn't let her do the physical shit though. But like she was still, she was very controlling and she would always say mean things. And there's, I mean, one of the things with Mother, the character of Mother, is she talks like the fucking Wicked Witch. Like yeah. there's no there's no sense of realism and it's like, you know, in the when he's, when he's either five or 11, which is a wide breadth of age. Yeah, by very the way. different very, subjectivity. Very, very long time to be taking what are effectively life-ending blows from a woman Frequently. seemingly on, you know, a super frequent basis. Um, but it's, you know, you put a, like a mom being angry at you in that um, in that context, then of course it would be like, like, you know what you are. Like, you know, like you and you're driving your father away from me because you're just it. You're just a thing and you're mine to control and stuff like that. Um, however, he encounters her in later life and she still speaks like that. And she speaks like that without any sort of um, like she just starts to, like that's that's the only way she talks. She doesn't ramp up to something. There's not She's just like one note. She's evil for no fucking reason whatsoever. Yeah. Right? And this is sort of how he, you know, he talks about in the, at the beginning of the book, he talks about how great his mom was right up until a point around, you know, in the book, it's first book, it's in first grade. And then she switched and then she became a drunk and she started hitting him and she ramped up the abuse and then eventually he had to be taken out of the house, mm. right? And put into foster care. Um, one brother says, yeah, that's basically what happened. And then it happened to me after he was gone. The other brother says, no, Dave was a, bad fucking kid. He constantly got in fucking trouble and he got sent to foster care um, after getting sent to juvenile hall because he like set part of the school on fire. Oh, and by the way, he was stealing everything. And Now, by the way, those both of those accounts don't, both of those things could have happened. They could, He could right? still be a bad kid and also have suffered. And Dave, Dave constantly, you know, in A Child Called It, he makes really passing reference to, he's like, look, I was like most kids. I'd got, got in trouble for causing mischief mm-hmm. and, you know, I sometimes lied. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, but, then, but then for no reason whatsoever, my mother started like stabbing me. And it's so interesting Trying to cook that, me over the stove. That yeah. he like um, insists on the no reason whatsoever because obviously something, just to take him at right? his word, right? Be, setting aside the like truth of the, yeah. the you know, whatever. Truth of the matter. Like, it's interesting that the, like, there's no, he can't, it's almost like he, f- like, physically can't bring himself to try to investigate the location or, like, why things changed with his mother. The idea that someone would just decide, like, today I woke up and now I abused my yeah. child is, like, so absurd and, like, it. Just, that's just not how any. And only, only one child. Well, yeah, but I just mean like it, yeah. like clearly, yeah. even just like to take it, take it as a text, whatever. Like something did happen, but he is not interested or incapable of seeing this person as someone who could have a just like could have something that had happened to her life that forced her to do this. Right. Or well, and it's upon you know the first time I read Foster it, the most the most unbelievable part of it was sort of oh well. Not that that happened. I'm just right? saying. It's, yeah, no. Yeah. Well, and he, he likes to bring up. It's like you know, there's a an idea called the targeted child, where in mm-hmm. families with multiple kids, that the the abuser will just seize on one, and sometimes the others will be treated like 
normal or like you know not as showered with affection while the one one kid and this is real you know this is this is a pattern that's been seen in in you know in child abuse um and that would fit his circumstance um the problem i always had on first reading it is like one of the most unbelievable parts is him that it's not like he's a kind of bad kid and his mother and it like and his mother just goes way out of control and has problems and is a drunk uh he's a perfect kid He's a perfect little angel who doesn't do anything wrong. Um, he's getting the best grades in his school, which makes him mm-hmm. getting held back in first grade even more mysterious and you know barbaric of his mother to do. Um, and at no point does he kind of like depict himself, his internal monologue or anything with like he, – he's like little baby Jesus Christ – like he just suffers all this abuse. Well, I, I and there's and it comes out of and it's completely dislocated from any sort of context. It comes out of nowhere. I, he didn't do something to make his mom angry. She just she was just waiting for her opportunity to, to hurt him constantly. And one of the problems that like um, people who advocate for like abuse victims and stuff like this had with the book when it when it came out and, and one of the thing that raised red flags in the '90s and led to the like New York Times article and stuff like that was like they were like there's. There's there's weird things missing from this, and right. one of them is a sense of chronology. It's it's the context for, like there's there's details that are common to abuse memoirs that aren't present here, um, and it's almost as if he's in in you know in writing this thing he's shaved away the moments between the incidences of abuse and just like mm. you know it's like he turned the camera on at the worst like right when it had ramped up to the worst possible moment but it you know it makes it like i was i couldn't have been more than 30 pages through before i was like i was like this is just this just reads suspiciously right this reads like like that indivinable quality where you're like someone's lying to me yeah you know and yeah. lying about this and i always thought it was like it which doesn't mean that nothing in you know nothing in the book happened or that everything in the book didn't happen there's just there's some sort of missing context there i have i have like Which a theory is very, that, yeah, yeah that's very interesting i mean it does when i was skimming through it i mean it has this quality of it reminds me of a like magician who is like interested in um like creating something like like you know, it's a sleight of hand. Like, yo, look at how insane this one thing is. So you don't look at this other thing, right? right? You don't notice that yeah. this is what's actually happening over here with my left hand. You need to look at the big show right. to kind of distract you. It feels like the art of distraction a little bit with these, the insane exaggerations. But it does sort of beg the question of like, oh, all of those missing things. Like, one is it? I mean, it could be that someone was just sitting down to write something very titillating, something that they found titillating, which begs its own sort of questions, psychological or analytical questions, right? Yeah. But also that, like, I don't know, maybe his inability to see this character of mother as anything other than a kind of avatar of abuse, because that's really what it is. I mean, it's like almost yeah. a costume. Yeah. Like saying that, like, it just, she woke up one day, and then she was an abusive person. I was perfect before, and then I was abused. Like, all of this stuff is just very, like you're saying, it makes no sense chronologically, contextually, all of this stuff. But it does feel like classic, like, the inability to see someone else as a person 
with motivate like as a fully formed human right. feels stunted in a way. Right. And which would make total sense with the abuse and with the relationship with the abuser. The problem is he then goes on to write about his teenage years in foster yeah. care. And then he writes about, you know, getting into the Air Force and then moving on with his life from there and running back into his mother and stuff like that. And literally everybody he meets is like either an indescribable asshole to him or like a couple of them take a chance on him and are nice. And he he always has the last word. He's always calming it. You know, he's always getting yelled at by people who aren't his mom, who for you know thin reasons. Um, and he's always he's always calm and in charge and has the perfect like response back to them. Um, and it's it reminds me of that. You know, if everybody you meet is an asshole, maybe you're the asshole, right? Um, and it's and and as said before in. In a child called it, he's he's a perfect he's a perfect kid. He's you know perfectly undeserving of this abuse, which you know obviously nobody no one would deserve no one yeah. deserves abuse, da da da, and stuff like that. But he's even when being you know, and, and we should probably mention just how crazy the abuse is. Like he's getting he's getting yeah, hit. I, I, like we're not talking about like he's getting hit a lot, but he's also being starved for weeks on end. Yeah, not allowed that, like to, here's the thing: it's not like it's not like a, like a the abuse that you might be thinking of, where like a child's getting hit and like you know, sort of the the common place well, abuse. He is too, but he's on top like of that, his yeah. his parents, his mom is like lay on the stove while I turn it on, and like because she yeah. read an article about yeah. another mother doing that, and, which and I always thought she, was like that's such a classic that mom, a if mom she, being like, you know what I, yeah. Uh, but also, wait, did anyone find that article? Because like, who wrote an article about that? His mom would somehow know <laughs> if he 70s, ate at yeah. school and then punch him in the stomach and make him throw up and eat the throw up, and like it's like. It it reminds me. It's a lot of that. Like, well, I mean, it's just like your bullshit detector goes off. You right? know, it's yeah. like, it, you know, he had to. She would. He would only eat out of the trash, but then she started putting ammonia on all the 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 trash so that he couldn't eat it, and so to like, poison him. Well, she left. She supposedly cooked a pork chop, left it in the refrigerator long enough for it to spoil, then put it in the trash can just to trick him into eating it from the trash can to give him diarrhea. Yeah. First of all, two are, things that mothers love. <laughs> One, giving their child diarrhea. And two, having spoiled spending food. money oh. to spoil food on purpose. Right? Yeah. And having spoiled food in your refrigerator, which, you know. And to spend time cooking something that isn't, yeah. I mean, which then spoils other food around it. It's stuff so that grows, there, right? It's, it's, it's weird. It's like, it's not even like a grown man lying about something that may or may not have happened to some degree in his childhood. It's like the way a child lies about yeah. things. Yeah. It's just this weird, like super fantastical, like, like view of the adult world of this thing that's like way bigger and everybody, you know, everybody's ganged up against him. And the problem is it he, it continues throughout his life. Everybody is always ganging up against him. Like once he's in foster care, which, you know, which he likes, um, once he's once he's in the Air Force, once he has to come to the hospital to see his father die. Mm-hmm. Like um, once once he's trying to get married, and you know everybody thinks it's a bad idea, including seemingly him, since all the all his only description of his first wife is just her being a mess and him being worried about her and not wanting to get married and feeling sick about the whole thing. You know, it's just this. It's like the pity party continues, which then casts you know whatever doubts you had like reading through the first one, which may be allayed by being like, "Fuck, man, when I'm getting." punched in the face by my mom at age six or 11, um, you know, my memory is probably not going to be great at that and it's probably yeah. going to be very scary and stuff like that. But you're like, he repeats, he keeps repeating these tropes mm. 
like throughout his life, um, and you're like, well, well, if none of the re- you know if if none of the rest of this is believable, yeah, like, well, it's it's interesting because. Um, you know, you have to keep this in the context, too, of, like, Pelzer's career, right? Like, it's not like he just wrote these books and these books came out. Like, it's a different situation a little bit than, like, A Million Little Pieces, which which, which we should kinda, talk about. Which, yeah, which, yeah. Because, like, The Million Little Pieces is, you know, James Frey's sort of famous memoir that came out about his, which is during a big t- glut of uh, of drug memoirs that came out that detailed his, like, crazy fucked up, you know, f- you know, horrible life, smoking crack and, you know, whatever, like doing, a girl's doing lines off of his dick, which I'm like, come on, bro. It happens. Off your dick? I'm never, I guess I put code weird. Yeah, actually, that's not that unbelievable. But he like puts that as a low point. I'm like, come on. <laughs> um, but, uh, but it's, my, you could maybe do a bump off of mine. But uh, he, uh, he, like, it's different than that because James Frey was like trying to be like, like a cool memoirist. He wasn't trying to be like an, necessarily an inspirational figure in some way. I mean, Oprah kind of made well, him. He was into trying that. to be better Jerry Stahl. He was yeah. trying to be more intense, more badass Jerry Stahl exactly. for, the, for the badass 2000s. Yeah. And, and but but what 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 uh, David Peltzer tries to do is is or not tries to do, very successfully does, is he understands very much that what he's selling is a product. Oh, yeah. And like he treats it like a traveling salesman. So everybody I'm sure listening knows that like bestsellers are fake. That, like, most bestsellers are just people, like, the publishing company or sometimes the author buying bulk copies of a book. The charts are charts are a lie. The charts are a lie. It's all rigged. The numbers are juiced. And so what Pelzer would do is he would buy a ton of copies, thus keeping it on the New York Times bestseller list, his, his uh, child called It. And he would essentially go and, like, hawk it in kind of, like, live shows. But what it would really do is, like, he would talk to, like, an auditorium full of teenagers or an auditorium, very often, full of, like, marketing people or uh, an office that was having, like, a, uh, I don't know, not a spirit day. What do they call when they make offices do stuff like that? You Compul- know, like... Compulsory fun? Yeah. Well, yeah. no, not even fun. But, like, but, you know, they would make... A team, team building. building. Yeah, they'd have him, like, come speak at team building things, and he would sell the book. And he's very, very, like, clear about that. Like, that is what his mission is. And so, like, there, there's, like, an added sense of unease with some of this stuff is that's, like, oh, like, this is just, like, he wasn't, he didn't become, like, a big, like, advocate for, like, you know, children or anything like that. It was really, like, he was, it was selling, it was selling this memoir very specifically. Right? Well, he and starts as an advocate for, like, yeah, foster care foster reform care. and supporting foster care. In the context of this too, is that it's the middle of the Clinton years and welfare is being like having its last part stripped away. Yeah, right. Um, and that a lot of these state institutions are running into you know like the government equivalent of bankruptcy. Right. Um, and so he's sticking up for these kids, but then he like s- sort of like gradually transitions into this motivational speaker whose focus is not on. Not on foster care and um, and child abuse and recognizing signs of child abuse. Um, it's perseverance and resilience, which starts as being like, "Hey, look how bad my life was. You can get through this stuff," which has you know an application to sufferers of trauma, child abuse victims, and things like that. But but eventually turns into this weird kind of attitude where he's like, "My life was worse than yours. Like, get over it. Like, don't yeah. don't." Which you know. It's kind of like a tough love sort of sell. It very but a much really is, weird one thing. for somebody who you know 
who starts who starts down this road by being a, like a champion a champion of the institutions and of the community being involved and you know has that has testimonials in the back of his book that start from the people who helped rescue him but then just eventually become testimonials from people he knew in his neighborhood and then by the third book just become testimonials from his wife and son about how good he is it's kind of weird that his books have testimonials in the yeah, back too yeah. <laughs> like um an odd tick but i feel like kind of in 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 keeping with his publishing house it's in keeping with the like the format of chicken soup for the soul Well, it's it's it's. I mean, I, I kind of want to bring it a little to a million little pieces too, because I think mm. there's some simil- similarities um, in kind of the reactions to the book, right? Because, like, you know, to to sort of, I guess, the more discerning reader, you know, you read these things and you're like, I mean, I don't know if we've we've done justice enough, just enough to like how sort of unbelievable this book is when you read it. It's like just it's 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 is really like I mean he it's it like is, hyperbolic. It's, it's absurd. Right. beyond hype. Yeah, completely hyperbolic. Yeah. It is just like unrelenting like 150 pages but spaced weird so maybe it's like 200 pages. It reads like something that you would find on like a GeoCities website that yeah. was like self-published with like an old web counter it, it, of someone like prior to like um uh, what's the the Twilight fanfic movie called? F- Fifty Shades oh, of Grey, getting Grey. like kind of blowing up that spot of yeah. like people thinking they can write or whatever. That's where it feels like you would find this. The language always remind me of like what we called like hate zines in the nineties, like yeah. Jim and Debbie Goads, Answer yeah, Me, yeah, uh, Peter Sotis is Pure, yeah. and things like that, which would you know often I was going to say drift into subjects like child abuse and pedophilia and stuff like that, but to drift somewhere you have to start somewhere else <laughs> yeah we're about those things and we're about those things very graphically and I think I already mentioned Brett Easton Ellis but it's like you know this A Child Called It comes out between American Psycho and Glamorama and it's like many of the passages if it didn't have an angel on the cover this could have been sold as like transgressive literature of the mm-hmm. period <laughs> right yeah, and it wouldn't have had a bigger like it wouldn't have had the same audience. Though, something that I I was sort of I guess I shouldn't have been, but I was kind of surprised to find is that when I was reading about it online, um, many of the people were like, I know people say that like it's made up or whatever, but like I don't care. It's still an inspirational story. Yeah. And so then I was reading about some of these other books, and I, specifically about a million little pieces, which I was really surprised by because a million little pieces. Was like sort of famously fake, right? Famously like was, debunked. Debunked because Oprah, for those who don't remember, you know, Million Little Pieces, a drug memoir. Oprah had had. Uh, it was on her list. It was on her list, and it was like Which one was of the first. It was like the first deal. like drug novel on her list too. And any author that got their book on Oprah's book list, it immediately yes, shot. Yeah. It was sold out. That's reprinted. Like, yeah. For eternity, that that's golden stamp like, was your ticket. Yeah, golden stamp. Yeah. Now someone else has taken over from this. I think it's Reese Witherspoon. But are they still yeah, selling books? Yeah. yeah, Reese Witherspoon is. God bless her. Yeah. But uh, but but yeah. So a million little pieces was a the big a huge fucking hit. A huge yeah. hit. Huge hit. And it's it's funny. And Oprah kind of put her credibility on the line there too with it, which is sort of tied up in this. I read part of it and I had no idea that it was written in that kind of like beat style where he like capitalizes random words and like will like he doesn't use commas. And it's like yeah. I thought it was like uh, I remember when I was like a teenager, we read or I read 
I think it was a beautiful. Maybe I read this in rehab, actually. But like when I was kind of younger, I read a beautiful boy, which was like a guy's memoir of his son's drug use in San Francisco. And it was just like a fairly straight memoir, you know what I mean, kind of thing. Like it wasn't written in any like spe- special way. And I assume this was the same, a similar kind of thing. But no, it's written this like this one had like street. I'm edge. bad, and I'm fucking. <laughs> and then I was I was reading more about James Frey, who, by the way, is now a very successful owner of an esports company. Uh, I was reading about him, and he's like, <laughs> "Yeah, I so want to be like fucking." I'm like, hey, you know, he's like talking about, it. he's like kind of like, uh, you know, he he's poses for a New York Observer article with a bunch of his books, and you can, you know, death in the installment plan is like prominently featured in the books that he put there. I'm like, all right, well, that's uh, listen, I, it's a fine book, but I don't know if it's, I would want that to be next to me on the Observer, um, but that's a great uh, book. what's up? I said that's a great book. Oh, yeah, that's that's it's all it's right. A classic. It's a classic, but I don't know. I like some. Of what's remind me? You've more. been reading about this. What's the gap between? His first Oprah appearance and the big like apology Oprah appearance. It's about eight years. So oh, yeah, okay. the gap. I think it's about eight years. So yeah. he goes on Oprah, and this is after a like nine page and I mean page internet page, but very long smoking gun. And if you guys remember that website, the smoking gun investigation into his claims mm-hmm. comes out, and they're like, oh, this is false. Like this guy, you know, he talked about being. It, you know, in jail for a long time, wrong, never happened. Like, he, and which was a, a huge critical part of the story. He talks about all these different arrests. He talks about all these people. He talks about all this drug use, blah, blah, blah. Like, it turns out that, like, he's kind of just repeating, like, old junkies' tales about, you know, yeah. like, you know. Uh, I had friends in A and in A who, around the time of, like, the second Oprah appearance, when people were starting to, like, question it. Yeah. Because it was it was popular with with a lot of like in a lot of like recovery programs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And stuff like that. But the common the common thread when people would read it would be like, wait, these are just these are fucking urban legends. Yeah. Like, this is urban stuff legends. I've been hearing ever since I've been in AA. You know? Yeah. And it's like this guy claims they all happened to him. And, like, and by twenty three too. And it's right? it's and and he wrote a sequel called My Friend Leonard, which is even crazier because it's about him being the protege of a mafia don and a mm-hmm. black federal judge who conspire together, who like to like help him out and like give him kind of like fatherly, like badass advice. It's so corny. And it, of course, these are sold as memoirs. These are sold as things that happened to him. And then Oprah brings him on the show after the smoking gun comes out, uh, the smoking gun investigation comes out, and it's like, uh, confronts him. Basically, and, yeah. it's, and it's a huge TV moment, massive TV moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, she later apologizes for it because mm. it was kind of an ambush interview in her last season. Mm. I know it's I don't interesting. Think have I know it's, but it became like his publisher. Time I, I was sort of surprised by it. His publisher um, stood by him. And while they did, I think, maybe eventually change it to fiction, he actually retained a book contract. He wrote a successful novel, which apparently is also – the reviews of his books in the New York Times, by the way, <laughs> are really fucking funny because they hate them all even before it's proven to be fake. <laughs> um, but, uh, but it's funny because I was reading a lot of people's sort of opinions from today about, uh, about A Million Little Pieces and about my friend Leonard – and they are people who still acknowledge that they are hoaxes. It's not hoaxes necessarily, but they're lies, right? I mean, yeah. he is hoaxing his audience. Um, and they, they, it really reminds me a lot of some of the um, stuff that uh, Hassan Minhaj said about mm-hmm. his comedy is that like, well, like, you know, it's not like true, but like it gets to the emotional truth of it. You know what I mean? Like it gets to the emotional core of it. And like – 
even with with a child called it, it's like I think it's if you re- if I think if people if you read it with even the slightest bit of critical eye, you're like I don't know if this is true, and I. I assume that many of the people who you saw him speak were probably like, yeah, your parents, your I don't know about that. I don't think it was written for people who have a critical eye. Well, I definitely was not. Um, yeah. In the in the interviews with Pelster in the late nineties, where where he's talking about, you know, being on the bestseller list, like having having this great reach, being nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, which there's he's not true. The Pulitzer Committee doesn't nominate he people. Does, yeah, you he was submit. not yeah, his anybody publisher, can submit yeah. Anybody can submit a book yeah. to be effectively That's why nominated. Lots of people yeah. like uh, market themselves based on being nominated for Pulitzer. Right? It's like I could say I'm, I'm, I've been, you know, considered for an Academy Award or something or an Emmy. Yeah, like, it's like that means that doesn't, it doesn't actually mean anything. Yeah. Which, you know, that's that's the charts in the 90s. That's online metrics too when you get into yeah. websites. Everything's this fucking game of smoke and mirrors. Nothing is actually, nothing is taught and is factually bound as, you know, I think the common person yeah. Or who hasn't been in the industry thinks. I mean, yeah, one of the things we were talking about fake. was the idea that books have fact checkers, yeah. which is largely not true. Like, that there's no, you know, there's no institutional apparatus, which is ironic in light of, you know, Dave's support for the inst- the institutions and stuff like that, to to catch things. No. Like, like Frey. It would have been between Frey and his editor, and if they chose to hire somebody who could go call his supposed jailhouse roommate mm-hmm. that he spoke to or some of his old junkie friends or whatever. Um, they could do that, but that's not in from what I, you know, from what I've seen of book contracts, it's usually the burdens on the writer. Just yeah. be like, hey, like I assert that all this shit's truthful. Yeah. If we're gonna call it nonfiction. But it's like nonfiction's not even a like binding category. It's a it's an an instruction for bookstore staff, you know? Yeah. Of where to keep it to help people. I was um Going through uh, the book Bunk by Kevin Young, which I think I've referenced before and recommended on the show, and he has a whole chapter on James Frey. It's a book that kind of goes through a sort of history of hoaxes and fakers, and it does a lot of it does a lot of different things. I, I really recommend it. And his uh, yeah, he's he's fantastic. But um, he uh, he was pointing out that in the in the new edition of A Million Little Pieces, after this whole scandal broke, the publisher added like a new prefatory note, which says, this book is a combination of facts about James Frey's life and certain embellishments. Names, dates, places, events, and details have been changed, invented, and altered for literary effect. Mm. The reader should not consider this book anything other than a work of literature. And Frey, I mean Frey, uh, Young, Kevin Young, like really took issue with that and took specific offense to them claiming that what makes literature is fakery, um, which I think is really interesting and maybe can get us back to the the kind of conundrum of Hassan Minhaj because what he says is, um, this is Kevin Young, he says, gone is the idea that something made up, real or surreal, could move us. Instead, readers insist that the thing that isn't real is. This is the thing you were talking about with how people were responding to these books. Instead, readers insist that the thing that isn't real is, that if it affects them, it can't be affected, that they cannot have real feelings about made-up things. And he like goes on, in defending the truth against the hoax, we are in fact defending the imaginary, preserving the possibility that make-believe can make claims on our emotions but not our facts. That truth is as actual as a tree, yet can be as abstract or verifiable as the DNA that makes it up. 
Literature comes not from mere falsehoods or simple facts, but from raw, genuine life. And I think that is kind of like, that really gets at it, right? Like, because it's not just that James Frey is like making this up, right? Yeah. I mean, it's like, yes, that's that's part of it. But then to go on and claim like, oh, well, um, it's just it's just literature. It's like, no, the stuff of literature isn't made up from just like it's just because it's a story. You know what I'm saying? Like it you can't just kind of flip it. And and Minhaj kind of does the same thing when he relies on this, this idea of emotional truths, which is sort of the classic, um, what I would call the classic hoaxer's gambit. <laughs> Uh-huh. Which is sort of like, well, it's it may not be totally true, but it's emotionally true to yeah, me. And right. people will insist on that over and over. And even Kevin Young, who wrote that book a while ago, um, before obviously any of this stuff came out, uh, consistently, like he cites over and over again people saying like, oh, it's it's just an emotional truth. It's okay because right. it's emotionally true. Well, it's like it feels to me too like Frey is the first part of a generation of hoaxers who can't just pull the ripcord at the end and be like, you got me. Or alternatively, gotcha, you fell for it. You know? Yeah. This was the P.T. Barnum exit. Like, haha, you didn't know what the egress was. Yeah. Right? Um, and who wants to still have the credibility that they had when they were sitting pretty on this, you know, completely nonfiction memoir full of bullshit. Um, in in their post life, and to be accepted for their apology, and continue to be considered like a peer of the of the literary community. I think it's insulting to like say like, "Hey, treat this as literature," because you don't get to say that about yourself. You know, someone else just calls you literature. It's like um, like that gets back to the the whole idea of you know being you know being a reporter first, and then then being a journalist, or being a comedian first, then being a truth teller mm-hmm. of a comedian or whatever that. You know, write write the book. Be be a writer first, yeah. and then worry. Let let other people. You know, let let the world worry about whether your literature or not. Like, yeah, yeah. This is from the New Yorker. Uh, Minhaj described his work as the dynamic range that theater and storytelling and comedy allow you to explore. Does that mean audiences should expect his words on stage to stringently hew to the facts on the ground? The slipperiness of memoir finds a new dimension when it's played for laughs in front of a crowd. And then she says, it's not not opinion journalism. And I think that's, you know, we, maybe we can say that. Comedians might not be comfortable calling themselves anything but comedians, but a number of them, Minhaj included, have inserted themselves pointedly into political conversation. They've become the oddball public intellectuals of our time. And in informing the public, they assume a certain status as moral arbiters. When fibs are told to prove a social point rather than elicit an easy laugh, does their moral weight change. And I, I just think that's very, like, that to sort of, like, you know, bring us all the way back around. Yeah. All it, of these stories sort of, you know, obviously they're not comedians. We, I don't know if we think Hassan Minhaj is a comedian, but... Oh, I'll give him that. <laughs> um, you know, they are, um, they are, I think, in their own ways, assuming a different status. Like, they're trying right. to do something else. Right, they're not just trying to tell their story. They're not trying to tell their truth. They're trying to, um, like she says, assume a certain status as a moral arbiter. Right, and in doing so, you assume a different kind of responsibility. You know what's interesting to me in a discussion of a comedian is that the idea that laughter is kind of downgraded to like this, you know, 
an, an easy laugh, a cheap, a cheap like alternative to the gravitas of the of the moral arbiter. Mm. Um, and this is something like my guess on the Hassan Minaj thing is that if the jokes were funnier, then the veracity of them wouldn't even come into play. That uh, yeah, that they're we kind of discount the function of laughter and what is actually happening and, you know, overturning expectation and transmuting what could be horrible things into a feeling of momentary joy, you know, that that doesn't even have a descriptor beyond laughing. Like, I was trying to think the other day about what the adjective form of laughing is. Like, when you're laughing, what are you feeling? Mm-hmm. Like, I guess amusement, but that's a noun. Um Laughter should be enough. Like, why is laughter an alternative to uh, why doesn't laughter have its own fucking moral weight in this topsy turvy, amoral, um, you know, godless society we call Canada? Well, US. I think even even like outside of the comedic value, I think that, and this is again, while I'll side with the New Yorker on this, is that he that Minhaj is like in his act, and I think this is the same thing that these memoirists, whatever we want to call them, are also leaning on is that they're, they are making a claim to authenticity. Like it, they're saying like I am allowed to make these jokes or I am saying this or I am telling you this because this is authentic. This happened to me. Right. And you're sort of – you're assuming a different status. Um, I think what's interesting is like, you know, there was the Hassan, Hassan Minaj – I keep saying him like Nicki Minaj. Um, <laughs> Minhaj, he like clapped back in a very – if you want to see an example of like how his stand-up goes, just watch his like clapback video. I guess that is – I have seen it, his Yeah, his I mean it's then, extremely like sit but... down, chuckle fucks, like, yeah. <laughs> like vibe. Um, and it's like a 21-minute YouTube video, which is oh, far too long for a YouTube video. <laughs> they get way longer than that, Liz. Yeah. And he, uh, he like brings his receipts. But it's funny because he presents his – you know, he presents all his like all these quotes, and he's like, "No, this is what I said," and it's a tape of you know what he said to the New York, and he's like, "They took it out of context." Ba da 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 da, and he's, you know, saying all this stuff. And you know, you brought up Janet Malcolm, mm-hmm. and this watching this clapback video. If we want to like again bring it all the way back around before we sign off, is like watching a subject of a. <laughs> takedown piece about whether or not they were true or false from me so much of the journalists and the murderer and watching a subject take issue with the with the kind of I don't know unstable or the kind of sense of betrayal that he felt at how his words were being taken out at that how his truth was being taken out of context by the journalist it was like so many it was like almost like too looping for me to kind of get my head around um but I think is really indicative of the kind of, you know, people like the idea that if you're, you know, they're just saying your story, that that's like the end-all be-all. And it's just like maybe not as stable of a narrative position as maybe people think it is. It's it's not. And I, and I think, I think, you know, in, in relation to all of these different things um, – the memoirist and Hassan Minaj. It's, uh, one thing that I've always been firmly a believer of is that, like, if you're funny enough, and you can replace funny with whatever, like, mm. talent uh, that you would need to be one of these memoir memoirists. Though I think that's a little bit different. But, like, 
with Minaj in particular, you know, like if if you're like being if you're a comedian, being funny should be your absolute primary goal. Truth telling. If we're talking Arnold Palmer's here, like th- that should be like it should be like seventy percent funny, eighty percent funny, twenty percent truth telling. Um, because when those ratios get reversed or, or lopsided in some way, um, you end up someone being someone who needs to tell the truth. Because if you're a truth teller, it needs to be truthful. You know, mm, you've lost the jester's you've privilege. Lo- you've, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You've lost the jester's privilege, and 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 um, you know, I, I think it's it should be a cautionary tale. Oh, you know, yeah. it's uh, I know I saw the PTSD flicker into mm. your eyes with mm. that one. Um, it, it should be a cautionary tale because it's like it's don't get. I mean, that's all this shit, man. Don't get fucking lost in the sauce. Right. You know, well, if you're gonna stick your neck out so far and be a moral arbiter yeah. for something, you have to have every you know every screw in, every nail like filed down, smooth to the surface, flush. You cannot have anything that people can attack you with. You know, yeah. like, and you that's have to have everything iron tight. Right, and so <laughs> don't. Don't assert yourself as a fucking moral arbiter, you know? Or, or I mean, this is not you. I'm sorry. No, um, I don't think I do. But no. no, exactly. Like you know, do do the work, you know, of being funny, right? Because if just, they're funny, start they let you there. do it. Yeah. My question is, I'm just like, how do these guys have all these good memories, man? Like, I can't remember what that teacher said to me ever, you know. Besides, just you're not that good at math. But you know what? I guess that's why I'll never be a memoirist. Well, you start with the gist of it, and then you just make shit up. I guess you know? that's true. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Keep the gist alive, though. I mean, you know, Pelzer Pelzer pulls from people who could basically discredit him to to make his uh, testimonials. Yeah. At the end of his books, and it's interesting reading them because I, you know, I keep talking about like this idea that. There's that the story he's avoiding telling is that he was a bit of a bad kid and like more than a bit of a bad kid, like a juvenile delinquent. Yeah. Like he's constantly making really passing references to stealing shit, to setting things on fire, to almost hitting like little girls in his neighborhood, um, to breaking things, to like launching his like motorcycle through a neighbor's like garden and shit like this. Um, and then being kind of like surprised when he sort of gets in trouble with it. Um, and and to me, what what is kind of like a weird kind of almost tragic element to the story is that it wouldn't have hurt a child called it, and it wouldn't have hurt its reception or anything if he was like he was like, oh yeah, I I, I kind of you know I was I was here and part of this too, like and my mom my mom went my mom went fucking crazy with it, and I drove her a little crazy, and like but she went completely yeah. uncontrolled and these it kind of things can happen. Yeah. That he has to, like he is sanitizing himself throughout the fucking story and is never, never in the wrong, is always surrounded by idiots, you know, idiots and arrogant people who think less of him and he always gets the last word. He always, you know, has the perfect fucking put down at the end, even at 12. You, we, you know, we discussed his, uh, his psychologist. Yeah. But, even you know, even the people he, he pulls for testimonials will re- will reference. They were like, "Yeah, he was he was he was a wild kid," and like, "I'm glad he got his shit together and stuff like that." And he goes to a psychologist who's depicted as this just like cartoon 1950s like post Freudian analyst, kind of like the couch and all that. Who who is like, "You need to you know shape up and fly right," a and Jew. et cetera. It's a very Jewish voice. Um, and and he's also worried that like the Air Force is going to find out about his past. And in each of those cases, you're like, well, wait, like you're you're 
like, why do you need to shape up if you were a perfect kid who was getting hit? Like, why why was it a question, you know? What, like, why would the Air Force have not let you in because your mom beat you, you know? It's like there's something missing here, and it seems to come from a place of, like, I mean, he even... It's, it's funny, too, because he... Speaking of tells, there's a proviso at the beginning of uh, the third book that specifically says... This book is not under any circumstances meant to be used as a reprisal or an opportunity to be vindictive, but rather to serve a purpose of what transpires in my life and the valuable lessons learned. It's obviously a reprisal and vindictive. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's just he's character assassinating people who are who are dead out of touch with him or soon will be. <laughs> um, and he's painting them as as complete monsters with very little saving grace. You know, and he's no longer doing this from the view of a child. He's doing this from like from the view of a twenty-year-old, right? I feel like there's like a breakdown in like in the in the late twentieth century of the ideas of of trust and believability, and it's nothing new. You know, literary hoaxes go back like to the printing press and before. Sure, like and fake memoirs, like as mm-hmm. said, have just you know kind of come and gone by the dozen, and some have worked and some some haven't. Um, you know, memoirs are like overwhelmingly or fake memoirs are overwhelmingly responsible for like massive movements and. In recent years, like the Satanic Panic and stuff like that, was all based around Michelle Remembers and Satan's Underground, um, which were just straight made up, um, and cost a lot of people like lives and freedom and communities and things of this nature. Um, and it's funny that at the birth of the internet, this, which is you know finally sort of revealing its face as this like disinformation accelerator. This thing that you know puts like insane truth to Mark Twain's axiom that you know a lie will be halfway around the world by the time the truth puts its shoes on, like that we had this rush in our culture of like the last last of the great traditional print hoax people. I like that. I'll Ish. take it. Um, but now, but it's just- of a kind, right? Because now, now, because of you know, in the in the age of the internet and social media, I think that, and I think this is part of Minhaj's gambit is sort of like there is a sense of like, well, don't we all kind of do this, right? And like, isn't all fiction kind of auto fiction, and isn't all auto fiction kind of fiction? You know what I mean? Like, there is a lot of everything is very porous now, right? And people. Are much more comfortable up until they they aren't. I think yeah. <laughs> up until they decide they don't want to be with the a very sort of. I mean, it's so corny, but to like cite it again, but like with Stephen Colbert's like truthiness, yeah, like in his sort of when he came out with that as his kind of um, diagnosis of the like cultural age or whatever, whatever. Um, but that that was kind of like a smeared, something kind of smeared out that we're all sort of okay with everyone. It's not lying, but and it's not totally embellishing. But yeah, it's like we're smearing ourselves out in service of, 
I don't know, personal brand or getting yours or getting famous on YouTube or publishing a book or whatever it is. I think the way it's funny, like it manifests now in like these sort of like, uh, there was like the sort of <sighs> confessional website stuff. You know, of like, you know, the blog era, I guess, kind of mm -hmm. up until a few years ago. And it was like a big pro – I remember reading – I can't – I tried to find it the other day. But reading this like sort of confessional about confessionals from somebody who worked for like Bitch Media or one of these like uh, Babe.net or one of those things um, about like working at these things and having to kind of uh, write about trauma and then kind of like having to like running out and like having to kind of like – put some more down because that was like the content right. uh, kind of game at or the like time. Or like Traumarama in Trauma, the Seventeen magazine. A little yeah. more a later than that, but yeah, it's like essentially kind of similar. Um, and now it's like, you know, I, I'm reminded of like people posting like am, things from like the subreddit, am I the asshole <laughs> to Twitter or whatever, and being like, you know, look at this jerk. And it's just, yeah, it's, uh, we'll never get tired of it. Well, we, we have to wrap up. Right. And uh, I guess my advice to the audience would be don't write a memoir. We're over it. We're over it. I'm done and reading the memoirs. Your personal essay is a memoir. Don't do that either. Yeah, it's a little memoir. It, let, let's tell you this. Why, why don't you try writing a beautiful novel? Yeah, we'll see you in 30 years. Write an 800-page novel about the Holocaust. Mm. You know what I'm talking about here? Just make it good. If it's Just good enough. Just make it good. Yeah. yeah, make it good. Yeah. And if it's good enough, say it's nonfiction. Right. You know what? If it's good enough, say it's nonfiction. If your story's funny enough, say it's a comedy album. With that being said, my name is a child called it Brace Belden, joined by Liz. Of course, producer Young Chomsky. The podcast is called True and On. And we'd like to thank you, Thomas. Do you have any plug? Uh, nothing yet. Okay. Not much. Well, if you are if you ever get stoned and look at YouTube, there's about 800 documentaries that Thomas has done. Oh Christ. Yeah, mm. you can you 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 know, you can see the heroin one I like a lot. The one in Prague? Outside Prague at the poppy yeah. fields? I yeah. love that one. Yeah. My that was God. great. Kublikan to me. <sighs> Indeed. And the podcast is called True and On. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>